1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A court case in America this week represents a trend that has flipped the script on abortion debates there are a growing number of plaintiffs who say that it's abortion bans that are infringing on their religious liberties. And there's a corridor of birch trees in Northern Ireland that's so atmospheric it ended up as a filming location for Game of Thrones. Then it got famous. Now it's dying off and providing an object lesson in how not to hang tourism on nature. First up, though. New Yorkers may have noticed some unwelcome guests hovering around their parties lately. The city's police department is increasingly using drones for surveillance and chasing complaints ranging from so-called subway surfing to noisy backyard gatherings. Assistant Commissioner Kaz Daughtry explained why. This piece of technology can get anywhere in this precinct in seconds. Shots fired, person stabbed, person shot. They hear the call, drone is launched. Those drones are becoming a more common sight in many American jurisdictions. It's not just those. Cops are seeking out a whole range of new gizmos to help catch troublemakers. And where to look for that tech? Well, where else?
2: The reputation of Silicon Valley is to be very libertarian and to be a bit suspicious of governments and to resist selling technology to them.
1: Guy Scriven is The Economist's US technology correspondent.
2: But recently we've actually seen that change and we've seen more firms selling different types of technologies to the defense industry, more firms sell to governments, and more firms increasingly selling surveillance capabilities to the state.
1: But what kind of tech are we talking about here exactly?
2: Well, there's a whole bunch of technologies which are both new and updates of existing technologies. One category is drones, another is satellites. You've got new types of kind of software platforms that are on sale where you can crunch lots of data from things like social media, and you've got new types of software that analyze video recordings for surveillance cameras too.
1: Okay, well, let's start with drones. That doesn't sound particularly cutting edge by this point.
2: Drones aren't new in and of themselves, but they are increasingly prevalent with police forces, and the technology that powers drones is getting better and better all the time, I spoke to one startup, for instance, that specialised in using AI to make drones easier to fly. So in order to avoid trees and stuff like that, you used to have to be quite experienced as a drone user, but this company was selling drones to police forces that almost anyone could pick up and with very little experience use. Another company I spoke to that sold drones to the New York Police Department had special technology which gave the drones night vision, cameras, and the drones were even able to smash through windows.
1: And another technology you mentioned that has long been sort of tied up in geopolitical tensions is satellites. What's going on there?
2: So the satellite market has been booming in the past few years, and that's partly because there are lots of companies now that help you get satellites up into orbit cheaply. There are perhaps 200 companies which sell satellite imagery So in a sense, the market for that has become really quite commoditized. What companies are doing, a bit like the drone market, is that they are trying to make their technology more advanced to kind of cut out a niche. So for instance, one startup I spoke to was called Black Sky, and they provide satellite imagery. And their niche in this market is that they can take an image of a spot on Earth every hour or so, whereas for rivals, that gap is a lot longer. And that can be used for kind of domestic uses, or it can be used to take a look at enemies abroad. And
1: you mentioned also, perhaps inevitably, that software is part of that. What exactly do you mean by that? What is the surveillance software
2: that plays into all this? So there are lots of different companies selling different types of software to help surveillance. One I spoke to was Ambient AI, and they sell a bunch of tech that monitors cameras for suspicious activity. Palantir is one of the really big examples. It's a data mining firm. It sells its tools to national security agencies and also police forces. So that includes the LAPD and they do stuff like monitor and crunch all sorts of data, including things like camera footage and social media feeds too. And then there's a bunch of more niche companies that do things like facial recognition software. And all these companies, particularly the software ones, are essentially very excited about what generative AI could do to boost their surveillance capabilities.
1: But as you say, the current hands-off, semi-anarchical, libertarian vibe of Silicon Valley really does fly in the face of all of this kind of surveillance tech stuff. Is that not putting off some of these companies or their shareholders?
2: Yeah, I think there certainly is an element of that. This kind of surveillance gear obviously makes lots of people a bit uncomfortable so for instance in 2020 amazon microsoft and ibm said they wouldn't sell facial recognition services to law enforcement agencies anymore although if you speak to kind of privacy campaigners they say that since then a whole bunch of other smaller companies have filled that gap but at least the really big companies feel a bit queasy about this
1: Is the point also that like at the end of the day, their singular motivation must be growth and they need growth markets?
2: Yeah, it is slightly like that, I guess, from a venture perspective. There is kind of a sense that a lot of the low-hanging fruit in tech, and particularly among startups, has been taken. So there are thousands upon thousands of companies that sell software to businesses that do things like help with HR functions and those markets get quite saturated. And so this, I guess, is a new frontier for startups and entrepreneurs to try to find opportunities in.
1: If they can stomach the related privacy concerns. Exactly,
2: yeah, if they can manage that.
1: We've been talking this whole time about the supply side. What does the demand side look like? How much do law enforcement agencies want to get their hands on, want to shell out money for this stuff?
2: So law enforcement agencies have historically been pretty slow to adopt new technologies. Even up until about 2009, the NYPD was still buying physical typewriters. So they've always been quite slow at buying this kind of technology, which is a challenge for the companies and and a challenge for venture capitalists as well. Another problem you have is that the market's really fragmented. There are about 18,000 police departments spread across the U.S., The average size of any one of those departments is about 50 police officers. And so it's both a market which is slightly resistant to technology and a fragmented one too. But the companies that are getting this right seem to be making lots of money and growing quite fast. So, for instance, Fusis is a company that sells real-time crime monitoring software. And it says that its sales have grown 300% in the last year, although that's most likely from a kind of very small base. I also spoke to Flock Safety, a company that makes cameras that read license plates automatically. And that started about five years ago and is now used in 47 American states, they told me. And there aren't really any signs of this kind of shift towards surveillance going away anytime soon.
1: Well, that is frankly ominous stuff, Guy. Thanks very much for sharing it all.
2: Thank you.
3: Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com
1: This week, Indiana's State Court of Appeals will hear a case on abortion that, at first glance, looks like many that have come before. The plaintiffs are citing their right to religious freedom, complaining about an overbearing and overzealous state infringing on their beliefs. But unlike the many Americans who have pushed for abortion bans, these religious campaigners want the right to choose.
3: South Dakota, one of the states that has a trigger law in
0: response to the Another Supreme Court Another law taking Court's effect outlaws nearly all abortions in Alabama. Performing the an restrictive
2: abortion. abortion law in the country went into effect in Texas. It essentially,
1: Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, abortion has been outlawed in more than a dozen states in America. Now faith-based activism is seeking to have some of those bans reversed.
0: Progressives are arguing for a religious right to abortion. Kenneth
1: Werner writes about America for The Economist.
0: They say that in some cases their religion not only allows abortion, but can mandate it. And that restricting access to abortion basically infringes on their religious rights. So when you say progressives, who is it? What demographic are we actually talking about here? A lot of the people making these arguments are Jewish women. Jewish law allows and even requires in some cases an abortion if a mother's physical or mental health is at risk. Jewish women are plaintiffs in a few lawsuits that are seeking exemptions from their state's abortion bans. There are two lawsuits that have been brought by Jewish women, one in Indiana and one in Kentucky. The Indiana lawsuit is the furthest along of the two. So on December 6th, The Indiana Court of Appeals, which is the mid level court one rung below the state Supreme Court, is going to take up the case and hear arguments in it. There have been similar lawsuits filed by religious leaders in other states that have abortion bans. Those would be Florida and Missouri. So I understand, I suppose, the
1: contours of the religious argument, but what's the legal argument that that all of these plaintiffs are making?
0: So in both of these cases in Indiana and Kentucky, the plaintiffs are citing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA. About a dozen states have this law in their books, and the federal government has it too. And the law basically allows religious objectors to get an exemption from a law if it substantially burdens the exercise of their faith. That's the language in the law. It basically means that if they're prevented from practicing their faith because of this law, they should get an exemption. And the government has to meet a pretty high bar in order to deny one. It's interesting because in the
1: American discourse, usually the crossing of law and religion comes from conservative quarters.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So over the past decade, the plaintiffs who have been bringing religious freedom cases to the Supreme Court and winning them have mostly been conservative Christians. There was a case called Hobby Lobby where a firm run by evangelical Christians didn't want to offer insurance coverage for contraception and they won their lawsuit there was a evangelical Christian baker who didn't want to bake wedding cakes for gay couples. He won his lawsuit. And so when it comes to abortion, it's often kind of assumed that the anti-abortion camp is the one most associated with religious freedom arguments. But that erases kind of a long history of progressives arguing for a religious right to abortion. Liberal Protestants and Jews in the years before... Roe v. Wade established a constitutional right to abortion, advocated for a woman's right to choose. Rabbis and Protestant ministers formed a referral and counseling network for women to get abortions. It served half a million women. So there is this long tradition of religious people arguing for a right to choose. And
1: so what about these two lawsuits in particular, the Indiana and and Kentucky lawsuits? How do you think they're going to go?
0: Well, they're making a really strong case simply because the Supreme Court has made it a lot easier for religious objectors to prevail. So to fend off a RIFRA challenge, to basically deny a religious objector's request for an exemption, the government has to show what's called a compelling state interest, and it has to show that its application of the law is the least restrictive means of achieving that. And so in this case – compelling state interest would be protecting fetal life. That gets complicated for a few reasons. I mean, the biggest one is there's debate over when life starts. But putting that argument aside, the Supreme Court said that the government undermines its argument if it's granting secular exemptions. And basically all abortion bans do have exceptions if a mother's life is at risk. Indiana has carve-outs for rape or incest both states, Indiana and Kentucky, really say nothing about IVF clinics and whether they can discard fertilized embryos that haven't been used. Legal experts are saying that if the state really cared about fetal life, in all instances, it wouldn't have these carve-outs. The legal argument that you're laying out here and then the law that it's kind of
1: skirting around, it just seems to me that it doesn't really limit itself just to cases of abortion. It could be conceivably much broader, no?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, Progressives are religious too, and they have used RFRA arguments to advance their causes that happen to be progressive political causes. So in 2019, there was an activist who was acquitted of illegally helping unauthorized migrants cross the U.S.-Mexico border. He was a Unitarian, and he said that his faith compelled him to help these migrants. And so the legal experts I talked to said that you could really see more progressives start to take advantage of this law and make refer claims. You could see abortion providers say that their faith compels them to help a woman who needs an abortion or asks for an abortion. You could even see doctors in states that have bans on providing transgender health care to young people. You could see doctors in those states make a similar argument. So there's this interesting aspect to all this, which is the fact that Riffer laws were initially championed by anti-abortion evangelicals. In fact, the governor who signed Indiana's law was Mike Pence. He was Donald Trump's vice president, and he's a Christian evangelical, and he's staunchly against abortion. So there's some slight irony that now it's progressives who are harnessing this law to get abortions. Kenneth, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
4: For two and a half centuries, two rows of mature beech trees, known locally as the dark hedges, have lined a country road. They were known to few people beyond rural North Antrim in Northern Ireland for most of that period.
1: Sam McBride writes about Northern Ireland for The Economist.
4: Their thick, interlocking branches twist up to the heavens. They're like the sort of contorted fingers of some giant. And there's a really atmospheric tunnel that is created by these two rows of trees where dappled light filters through. But it's dark, it's eerie, it's very, very atmospheric. And for as long as anyone now alive can remember, they've just been part of the scenery. But just over a decade ago, these trees found fame and fame has hastened their downfall. How did the trees get famous? HBO's Game of Thrones used this scene as a filming location It represented the King's Road. It was only on screen briefly, a few seconds. But while they say that money doesn't grow on trees, these trees brought in enormous sums of money to Northern Ireland. They brought tourists from all over the world, thousands and thousands of tourists. And the Northern Ireland Tourist Board promoted this attraction. It put up signage to help people to find them. But in doing so, these people who came to view this really spectacular scene in Northern Ireland were unknowingly hastening the decline of what they'd come to admire. How do you mean? How did they hasten the decline? Well, traffic jams on this tiny country road meant that cars and heavy coaches filled with tourists were pulling up on the banks, they were churning the soil to mud, they were really compacting the earth and damaging the shallow roots of these enormous trees. Trees which were, in many cases, coming to the end of their natural lives anyway. But rather than getting careful management they got Instagram likes, they got fame on the internet, but the actual trees themselves were being damaged in the process. Northern Ireland's authorities eventually banned traffic from the road about six years ago, but that hasn't been enforced. And so cars continue to go up and down this road. And year by year, branches have been shearing off the trees. There have been storms that have uprooted entire trees. And where there once were more than 150 of these enormous gnarled specimens now there's just 86. Last month, teams arrived to chop down another six of the trees because they're now unsafe. And while the dark ages are still a very impressive sight, year by year, they're shrinking. And in a few years, very little of this scene is likely to survive. So another of
1: those cases where tourism can really be a bad thing for a beautiful place.
4: Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think it's easy to take away the wrong lesson from this, that tourism is just bad. Having the public present in nature can actually be a bulwark against environmental collapse because they see it as it's happening. They put pressure on those who can change things. while change is still possible. In fact, there have been other examples where serious environmental damage has occurred in places where they were out of sight, they were out of mind. The public didn't see what was happening in those places until it was too late. The problem with the dark hedges wasn't the tourists per se, but the failure of the local authorities in Northern Ireland to deal with the people who they had invited to come and see these trees. They could have sealed off this road to traffic. They could have been more proactive at pruning the trees for deadwood and in trying to respond to storm damage. These trees were seen by too many people, I think, as the chance to make a quick buck with very little thought as to what that would mean for their long-term future.
1: Sam, thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. In case you missed it, yesterday we released the first bonus episode of Boss Class, our subscriber-only series on how to be a better manager. It's a long interview with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, who's become an artificial intelligence evangelist. If you're a subscriber, have a listen to why he thinks being AI-savvy is soon to be a core competence for every white-collar job. And if you're not a subscriber, you know where to go, you coy thing. Details in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
3: What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP. Helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.